So let's get into the word. We are 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray, and then we're going to get into our sermon here, which I think is very applicable to what's going on because we can be so focused on the other stuff and forget that we are disciples of Jesus, and we really need to be grounded into our discipleship with Jesus to make these positive changes moving forward. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your provision that we can even take these steps to hire on Steve to bring on Pace just really exciting things that you're doing, God, and we just want to be really sensitive to your will and do as your will leads and not as our flesh. We want to be led by your spirit. And so, God, with all these different things that are before us and different things that are issues, we realize, God, that it's probably not all of it, but something that we do need to focus on, Lord, is our discipleship to you, and as that happens, we are led to do good in other places. So we ask for that sensitivity to hear from you. And God, as we go into these scriptures today, help us to keep in mind these really important concepts, these really important trademarks of a disciple of Jesus, and help us to internalize all these things and live these things out in Jesus' name. Amen. Very applicable instructions on how to follow Jesus here in verses 7 through 11. If you have ever questioned what discipleship looks like, look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Extremely practical for us today. And if you like lists, here's a list for you. Okay, here it is. And so, trademarks of a disciple of Jesus. Here it is. First thing, prayerfulness. Verse 7. Second thing is love. Verse 8. Third thing is hospitality. Verse 9. Fourth thing is service, verse 10. And then lastly, worship, verse 11. We're done. Amen? Okay. Merry Christmas. Hope everyone had a great time this morning. Some of you are like, yes! Yes! Too bad. We're going on. Here we're going to begin with prayerfulness, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So the end of all things is at hand. Peter's letter here has made it clear to us that this is a temporary place for us, right? We are exiles. We are sojourners. That there is more to life than this present life, but that there is an urgency. There is an end. Something is imminent. So he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last 
time. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, Peter wrote, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails. So we all know that this is a temporary place for us believers in Jesus. That our life isn't just right here, and it's not just right now. There's more to life than what's here and now, even though what's happening right now has great ramifications after we die. And so, yes, our life here is extremely significant. What you do here is extremely important. But there are everlasting ramifications, decisions that are made here right now in the present. But as believers in Jesus, we know that our lives go beyond our physical lives here. That we go through challenges, we go through tests, we go through trials right here, right now, but we know that there's a life beyond these challenges and trials that this time is not forever. Thank God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to be a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, please keep in mind that Peter's not writing theory. Peter's not writing a hypothesis. We're talking about someone who was an eyewitness who walked learned, walked with Jesus, that he was an eyewitness to the injustice that Jesus faced at the trial, at his murder at the cross. He witnessed his resurrection. He witnessed him with them after his resurrection. He witnessed the ascension. He was an eyewitness. This is not theory. This is not a story. This is someone who's reporting Exactly what happened for him as a witness on trial, an eyewitness. Keep that in mind because sometimes people are thinking like, oh, you know, that gospel stuff, that Jesus stuff is just a story. It's just a theory. No, this is an eyewitness. This is someone that lived during that time and is reporting what happened during this time. So when he wrote this, it's not just a hope for him. It's not just a wish for him. This stuff is real. This stuff is truth. It is reality. And he couldn't deny it even if he wanted to because he was living through it. Jesus said he was returning, and Peter knew that. It wasn't a theory. It wasn't a story. Everything else that Jesus told him since that time happened. It happened. And so to believe that he's returning, Peter's like, yeah, it's going to happen. Everything else that he said happened, so this is going to happen too. The end of all things is at hand. Do you sense the urgency in Peter's writing? The end of all things is at hand. It's happening at any time. Jesus' return is imminent. Anytime. I wish it was right now. Messed up, Jesus. See, we don't know when. We don't know when. But we know it can be at any time. And since we don't know when it is, how can anyone who believes in Jesus return being imminent be complacent with how they're living their life. 
How can you be? You have no idea when he's coming back. So you have to be on. If you truly believe that Jesus' return is imminent, it changes things. It changes things in your life. It changes how you live. And it changes the interactions that you have with people. So that if you start bubbling up and you start wanting to say words that you're going to regret later and you're angry, it changes things to know in a minute Jesus might be back. And you might be in the middle of some word you don't want to say. And so if you knew Jesus was going to show up at any time, any time, wouldn't that influence you extremely strongly in terms of how you lived? Would you do the same things that you're habitually doing now that are sinful things? If anything, you'd think twice about it. You'd pause. You'd wait. So holiness and righteousness and purity, all of those things would be on your mind if you truly believed that Jesus was going to return at any time. It would be right here. How you talk with people would be different knowing that eternity is real and that right before his return would be the last opportunity people had to be, had so that they looked to Jesus as righteous and before a holy God so that Jesus could be their mediator. It would be their last opportunity for you to share the gospel with them. It would change things, right? It would change things. It would change how you look at people. It would change the conversations that you have with people. Have any of you done the network marketing thing? Nobody? Come on. I know it's embarrassing, but I'll be the first to admit, I did it. All right, now we have some more honest people. Or if any of you are in sales, anybody in sales? The same people that are in network marketing? Awesome! You know that in your head, there's dollar signs on everybody, right? And so when you talk to people, you maneuver them into that conversation that you have. That's what you do. This is how I kind of feel with the gospel. Every conversation... I see over them. I just see the cross. I need to lead them to that. This might be the last time I'm going to talk to you. You might be a complete stranger. You might be whatever. You might be some dude at Disneyland Main Street that I'm just going to have a talk with, end up being like one of the awesome pastoral candidates that applied to the church and stuff. But that's what I see. We have to see that in people. We have to see that without the cross, there's eternal separation from God. You're not trying to sell them on anything. You're trying to save their life. And if you don't see it that way, the gospel's not real to you. If you're thinking of it as some multi-level network scam, the gospel's not real to you. Jesus is not real to you. It's not like Peter. It's not like Peter to you. The end of all things is at hand. That's not a scare tactic by Peter. Peter's not trying to scare. It's just a fact. He is just factually reminding people that Jesus' return is imminent. It's at any time. So how are you living? What's your relationship with Jesus like? Are you living in a fashion that proves that Jesus' relationship with you is indeed genuine? Does Jesus' imminent return influence your discipleship to him? You look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44. But concerning that day, that end of the age day, an hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. 
For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay Awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Are you ready for the return of Jesus? Where will he find you when he returns? This can be embarrassing. Right, these past few weeks, were there moments in your life, these past few weeks, where if he showed up, you were definitely not ready? Perhaps you were in a compromising place with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe you were in that dark place that you know isn't a place for you to be, like looking at porn middle of the night at that computer screen or taking in that substance you can't let go of. Or maybe you've been mistreating people, cheating people, practicing sexual immorality. And it's from this reminder, this mindset, the end of all things is at hand. That Peter then gives these further instructions on how to live as a disciple of Jesus. Verse 7 here, Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. In other words, self-control is to be of sound mind. It's to be of the right mind and to curb those sinful appetites so that you're not morally unstable. Right? Sober-minded is to be calm and collected and temperate, to have the ability that you can be watchful, that you're not caught up in something else. So why must we be self-controlled and sober-minded? Verse 7, For the sake of your prayers... Have any of you thought, like, I pray, but nothing's happening? Maybe this is why. Maybe this is why. And so you see that prayerfulness is at the top of this list. It's the first thing. Let's take a look back to Matthew's Gospel again. Chapter 26, starting in verse 36. So Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, again, this is not theory, this is real eyewitness, Peter was with him. Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. For any of you who pray, really pray, I'm not just talking about before you go to sleep and before you eat, that you really enter into prayer, you know it's not easy. You know it is extremely hard. You know it's one of the toughest things to do. This is part of my job. This is one of the main things that I am to do as a pastor, to minister the word of God and to pray. So a lot of my time is towards this. And I know that any of you who have been to our prayer meetings, our New Year's Eve prayer meetings, or any type of prayer meetings that we conduct, you know that they're not very well attended because it's tough work. People might say, oh, it's boring. We don't want to go because it's just like a waste of time. It's boring. The real reason is spiritually it's tough work. Your flesh says it's boring, but your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And it's such a tough battle to enter into. And we know it's so hard. And so sometimes I wonder if we're in our prayer meetings and Jesus were to come back at that time. I just wonder what his face would look like. I just picture, would it be one, I'm hoping that it's one of joy to just see who's there and who's praying. But then I'm also thinking, like, if I look deeper into his eye, I think I'm going to see a look of, like, sadness. Just like he saw the sons of Zebedee and Peter sleeping on the side and be like, man, what you guys could have had because it would have prevented you from entering into temptation. It would have prevented you from this sin. He says, watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know where I get this example from? Is if you look at Peter himself, because you just go a little bit ahead, and Peter denies Jesus three times at the end of Matthew 26. And you wonder if Peter were to enter into that prayer if this would have happened. Jesus told him how not to enter into temptation. This is how you're going to do it. You're going to pray. The flesh is weak. The spirit is willing. So what is prayer? Maybe some of us need a definition of what prayer is. Prayer is the main communication pathway in our relationship with God. It's the main one. The main one. Why do you think that it's under so much attack? When people enter into war, what is one of the first things they try to do? They try to cut communications of the other side so that they can't communicate as to who's doing what and what's going where. That is one of the first strategies on how to cut people off, right? So there's all this techno wars going on about viruses and entering them in and breaking those kind of internet type of communications and telecommunications and all that kind of stuff. It's the first thing that is entered into in terms of a battle when people are fighting one another. It's similar to spiritual battle. This is the first part that our enemy wants to cut off. He wants to cut off communications. But it's the one that is so critical in ministry. It's one of the things that the early church leaders truly devoted themselves to. It's part of what I'm here for, what Steve's going to be here for, what our elders are here for. Acts chapter 6, verse 4. But we will devote ourselves 
to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, not to social justice issues. Sorry, that's not my job. I attended those meetings. I got the information. I'm sharing with you now. I need somebody else to go for those education reform meetings. It's not me. I pray and I study the word and I teach the word of God. That's my job. That's my job. Nothing else. All the other stuff is extra and stuff that I want to include you and equip you to do. But my ministry is the ministry of the word and to devote myself to prayer. See, Satan is not worried about big churches. You think he is? You think some big church out in the suburbs there, you've got, ooh, big church, ee. <laughs> he doesn't care. It's like, it's nothing. I send one demon, and all it takes is that. I can send one demon, put it into that family, and divide that whole church, church split, ha ha, meh, big church. You think Satan's scared of churches that are really involved in the community? Oh, they're so involved. They're doing all this stuff. I'm really scared of them. Do your stuff. I'm concerned with their souls. I don't care if these kids get educated more. I don't care if you lower crime more. It's not my concern. I just want them to die. You think it really scares them? Addressing social justice issues? You think wealthy churches scare him? You think growing churches scare him? Don't scare him. He's not worried about that stuff. You know what worries Satan? A praying church. That's what worries him. A praying church. No matter size, no matter how much influence, no matter how much growth there is, a praying church is what he's concerned about. We need to be a praying church. A church that prays to God for wisdom, for our leadership, for the marriages here that are struggling, for the relationships here that are struggling, for the health of the people in our church, for God's will, for the things we can't see, but there are spiritual things that are happening and they have a profound influence on people's lives. We need God to do his work. And prayer is rarely something people feel like doing. It's something that really requires discipline and commitment. I mean, how many times have you heard Christians say, like, I really feel the need to pray. Let's pray. You know what I hear more? Where are we going to eat? Seriously, right? Where are we going to eat? Where are we going to go get a drink? That's what I hear more than, like, hey, we need to pray. Let's pray, guys. It's more of, like, what you guys are going to do, what movies you're going to go watch, or, what like, stuff. And if you want to see amazing things happen, it's probably not going to be some program that we're going to put together. Even though we're going to put those efforts in, like pace, like hiring a full-time assistant, like those things, we're going to put those efforts, but it's probably not going to be because we have more activity in our community. It's probably not that stuff. It's probably going to be because we got down and dirty and we prayed. This community changed because of prayer. It wasn't because we had a vibrant refugee ministry or homeless ministry or taekwondo ministry or community garden. Or It's not that stuff. It's we prayed all those first years of this ministry getting started. We prayed hard. And there's no such thing as a person who claims to follow Jesus who never prays to him. Prayer is the foundation in our relationship with Jesus and to fight against darkness. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He doesn't care about church growth. He cares about you dying. All the other stuff is fluff. He can care less about that. He wants you dead. He wants you eternally separated from God. That's what he wants. He doesn't care about the other stuff. See, not knowing that your adversary, the devil, is on the prowl and knowing that Jesus' return is imminent, those aren't things meant to scare you from Peter. Peter's just giving you the facts. He's just giving you the truth. He's giving you the reality. It's knowledge given to transform us, to help us in how we live our lives as a disciple of Jesus, which is what we find here in verses 7 through 11. Prayer, love, hospitality, service, worship. Moving on to verse 8, love. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. For Peter, this is a given for Christians. It's a given that they possess love, that we love one another earnestly, to love each other fervently. And this is simply a reminder of what he already wrote earlier in his letter. Right? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. See, love, real love, takes work. Not sleeping around. Not saying I love you and it's just like this little relationship with no commitment and then just takes off and off to the next one. Real, authentic love, it takes a lot of work. So when we take a look at the word earnestly, it's a word that describes intent, diligence. It's an intentional love. It's an obvious love. It's a love that takes a diligent effort. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. We may have many ways in which we describe ourselves or how people outside of the church describe us. Right? You can go out in the community and ask people, hey, what do you think about Regen and all this kind of stuff. But one quality that is of great importance and one that we can't do without is love for one another. So that if we were to talk to somebody, that one of the first words out of their mouth would hopefully be love. That we love our community, that we love people. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 14 do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Why is love so important? First Peter chapter 4, verse 8, love covers a multitude of sins. Covers a multitude of sins. Now, this doesn't mean that sin is no longer something for us to worry about, that we just kind of put everything under the oh, it's okay, it's all grace, it's all grace, hey, everything's fine. Because sin is serious. Sin is extremely serious. It's what separates you from God. It's what separates us from God. And because we have love for one another doesn't mean that we just let sin have its way in our brothers' and our sisters' lives. 
a serious issue, still needs to be addressed. We still need to confront sin. We still need to practice discipline. So what is love? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Disciples of Jesus pray, love. Number three, we show hospitality. Verse nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And so here's a way that love is practiced by showing hospitality, right? Extending love and care to others, sharing with others what we have to generously provide to others what they need. And it's not just material provisions like food and drink and anything material, but things that people long for like friendship, right? A listening ear, a sympathetic heart, a place where people feel welcome. And Peter isn't giving us a list of impossible tasks. These are just really practical, doable things. Now, we have to think back to Peter's day. When, at a time when there were no Hiltons. Man, that was a good time, huh? Before he had children. Anyway, <laughs> before Hiltons and before Marriott's, unless fellow believers at that time opened their homes to fellow Christians they would be out in an area that was pretty hostile towards them. Because people did not like Christians. And so, yes, it was extremely inconvenient because there was no telephone to let somebody know, like, hey, I'm on my way. You just kind of showed up. And in our Western culture, how many of us like this? You're like, I'm not dressed. I go, and my house is a mess. And I haven't cooked anything. And you're like thinking about all the things. My yard is a mess and all this kind of stuff. And you're thinking, like, how can I be a good host if I'm not prepared? Well, here's like, I'm here. You are. <laughs> Welcome. Come on in. Did you know that he's coming? No, I didn't know. No. So how is this applied today? Since we do have hotels and we do have these ways of announcing our arrival before we just kind of showed up. Well, there are a ton of ways for us to show hospitality. A ton. Now, some of you did a really, really awesome job during Thanksgiving when you opened your home for others to celebrate with you and you invited them in and you just did a great job and you cooked a great meal for them. You provided a great place of friendship and just hanging out and stuff. And that's awesome. Some of you really have that gift. And Christmas coming up, I know some of you are already having that mindset too, you know. Not everyone has a place to go. Like who out there is someone we can extend an invitation to and be a part of things. And for some of you to open up your home and for others to feel the hospitality, it's going to be such a blessing for them. And some of you guys really know how to party. And I know New Year's Eve and New Year's is just right around the corner. And you have plans for that already too. And you're thinking, like, who are we going to extend and bring in and show hospitality and all this kind of stuff. And someone that, who might not have a place to go celebrate, 
some of you really have that gift. And I apologize ahead of time for those of you who fall through the cracks that we just missed you. And I want to ask you that feel lonely or that you've fallen through the crack to please reach out to us because we can't read your mind. We don't know every single person here that we need you just to let us know so that we can find a place for you so that we can extend hospitality to you because sometimes we're just missing it because we see people that do need it and we focus our attention there and then we miss this, you know, so we need your help. Now, the hospitality doesn't just have to be on special occasions though, does it? Actually, we have this opportunity all the time. And every Sunday, we have this opportunity after service. You guys all eat lunch, except for the holy ones who fast and pray. <laughs> but most of us simpletons eat lunch. And some of you are really good at this. You go out and you try to look for somebody and you invite them and you bring them in and you have lunch with them, right? And we're so blessed to have you part of our church family that you do this. And I want to encourage you who do this to keep doing that, to keep showing hospitality, to keep using your gifts, that you're so inviting and inclusive and so good at helping people feel welcome. And we so need your wonderful gift of hospitality in operation in our church. Please keep doing that. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Took it up a level. Without grumbling. Because some of us can kind of fake this, right? Oh, yeah, we got, got to invite somebody out to lunch. Let's, 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 that guy will do it. Let's get him. Let's, he looks like he doesn't talk much, so let's get him, you know. Let's go invite her. She's kind of cute. Let's get her. Let's do that. And so without grumbling means like you kind of secretly do it, but you don't really want to. It's just kind of like you really don't want to, but it's like, oh, we, but we have to. Because today he talked about hospitality, and so I got to invite somebody. And just get that guy. And you're just kind of like, oh, hi. It's so good that you can join us. Man, we had to do this today, didn't we? Just, Yay, come on, come on. Listen, we're going to go get Vietnamese sandwiches. Don't show hospitality begrudgingly. Don't fake it. You show hospitality on the outside, but on the inside, you, you don't really want to or you don't really like to. And outside, you're all smiles, but inside, you just can't wait till it's over. And you're just like, whoo, got that one done. Third one off the checklist, got that done. We prayed before we ate, got that one done. And um, loved him. Didn't we love him? We invited him. We loved him. Right? Well, we got that done. And we showed hospitality. Cool. We got three out of five. We're good. We, we're good. Let's move on. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? 
when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Showing hospitality without grumbling. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Characteristics of a disciple of Jesus, prayerful, loving, hospitable, here's number four, serving. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. No matter who you are, you have a gift, some gift. Some may be small, some may be big, some may have numerous gifts, some may have one gift, but you've all been given a gift. God has given everyone a gift. He's really generous. He's an extremely generous God. And sometimes he's way generous to other people because you're looking at them like, she has multiple gifts. I have one. What's up with that? Live with it. Just go with it, right? Whatever gift you have, though, it's not to be self-serving. It's to be other-serving. It's to give it to others, to be good stewards of the gifts he's given us. And these gifts of God's are gifts of grace because you and I surely didn't earn them, right? Like the gift of discernment. How did you earn that? That would be interesting. How did you earn that? He just gave it to you. The gift of prophecy, how did you earn that? God just gave it to you. He generously gave it to you. And so these gifts are varied. God's varied grace is of various colors, right? It's multicolored, and he brings all these different colors beautifully together. That it's not just like black and white. That it's all this beauty into this. Now, what is this speaking to? Being a disciple is not a solo act. You don't do it on your own. It all lived out in community. What Justin McRoberts shared last week, right? It's all lived out in community. Praying, loving, hospitality, serving. None of that is done alone. You can't do that alone. Oh, I love you. I love you. I'm going to serve you water. We're so hospitable to each other. I'm going to keep you warm. I'm going to pray for you. You're so good. It's, none of it's done alone. I mean, that's silly. Kind of felt good, though. I'm going to do that again. But your gifts, they complement others' gifts. And, and together we serve one another. Right? And so you see how not one person is the minister. I'm not the minister. We all minister to one another. We may have different callings. We may be led to do different things. But we all minister to one another. We all have a part in serving one another. The ministry staff doesn't have all the crayons. We don't even divvy them out. You have your own crayons. 
And we all have our own color, and some of us have multiple colors, and we all come together and we all make this beautiful art. And we're all servants, and we all have our own gifts to serve in areas that others can't. Because maybe I don't have green, but I need it because green's pretty. Right? And maybe I don't have silver. I don't, I don't have certain things. And we, to make this stuff work, we kind of need each other. Now, continuing on with these beautiful gifts. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Right? So whoever speaks needs to speak of God, not of herself, not of himself. And so this is what Luke wrote in Acts chapter 7, verses 36 through 38 about Moses. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. God's alive. His word's alive. The gift of speaking must be used to speak God's words of life. Right? God is the one who gives the words to speak. Verse 11, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. It's not that you are serving out of your own strength. God supplies the strength. Which is why it's so important for us to pray about where God is leading us because we don't want to work out of our own strength because it's just temporary. People get burnt out. People get tired. We want to be led by God's strength. So, for those of you who say you can't serve in a particular task, you're right in that you can't serve out of your own strength. But if the Lord is guiding you there, you can, and you're going to do amazing things because He supplies that ability to do that. And it all goes back to God. The words we speak, the acts of service, all credited to God, which leads us to worship, right? Glorifying God for who He is. We serve not through our own strength, but by the strength that he supplies to us. Finishing off here in verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God is glorified when we use the gifts that he has generously given us. He's worshipped. You know, when, when we do this stuff, this is worship. When we pray, when we love, when we serve. Or when we show hospitality, it's worshipful. And the glory's not ours, it's God's, right? And so here we have the trademarks of a disciple of Jesus. Prayerfulness, verse 7. Love, verse 8. Hospitality, verse 9. Service, verse 10. Worship, verse 11. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and how simple it is, Lord, but how challenging it is for us to truly live in accordance to your word. We know how challenging having a life of prayer is and loving people and showing hospitality and serving, Lord. And yet, all that stuff is glory to you. It's worship to you. And so how can we worship you, Lord, if we don't possess these things? How can we call ourselves disciples of Jesus? I pray, God, that our hearts, our attitudes, our mindsets would be moved towards you, God. That we wouldn't be performing these tasks as just checklist items, yet our heart 
doesn't change or hasn't changed. Lord, we have so many things on the horizon here, so many ways that we want to affect our church, our community, in the name of Jesus. Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, to go about doing your work? In Jesus' name, amen.